Hello and welcome to our two-part podcast about delivering sexual health care to young people. This is part one of the podcast and my name's Tim Senior and I'm coming to you from Darawal country, southwest of Sydney, where I live and work. I'm a GP who works in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and we're joined today by um, a fantastic group of young people. Why are we talking about sexually transmitted infections in general practice in young people? Well, in 2020, 15 to 29-year-olds accounted for 66% of chlamydia notifications. But we know from the It's Your Love Life survey, which is a periodic survey among young people aged 15 to 29 living in New South Wales, respondents had most often been in contact with health services that were general practices at uh, 45%, and second was sexual health clinics at 5%, nearly 6%. So we know that GPs are the services that young people are going to for their sexual health. Young people have multiple issues and see their GPs about other things, and some issues are shared, and GPs and young people sometimes feel embarrassed raising the issues. So today we're going to hear from a range of people providing services in general practice and from people using general practice services about what's important to them and what they want from a GP when it comes to sexual health care. So who have we got on the panel today? We've got Courtney Vernalia who works for Youth Action, the New South Wales peak body for young people and youth services. Courtney currently heads a statewide project called Ask for Health in partnership with the Ministry of Health focused on supporting young people's health literacy and their access to the health system. Also joining us, we have Ali Carter. Ali is a proud Gamilaroi woman from a rural town in northwest New South Wales, Moree. She's a strong advocate for young people and is currently studying a Bachelor of Social Science with a double major in politics and social justice at Macquarie University. Also joined by Jawad Imam. Jawad's a fourth year physiotherapy honours student and a member of the Youth Action Health Literacy Advisory Council. Joined as well by Dr. Melissa Kang. Melissa is a GP working in youth health with marginalised young people and is Associate Professor in the Specialty of General Practice at the University of Sydney. And finally, we have Dr. Elizabeth Le Prince. Elizabeth is a rural GP based in Tamworth in New South Wales. And Elizabeth works in both general practice and a sexual health clinic. And she is the proud new owner of four guinea fowl, I hear. Welcome to the podcast. So let's kick right off. One of the important things is uh, wondering how GPs can engage and build the trust of young people around sexual health. We know that young people come to GPs for many different reasons. And so there's opportunity there to build trust for future contacts with us about sexual health. So I'd just like to start with Ali and Jawad. What would you say is really important for young people in feeling engaged by their general practices? I think it's really important for GPs to really build a non-judgmental, respectful and caring and take an understanding approach when a young person comes to them for sexual health because as a young person, it can be really difficult to seek medical advice around sexual health because of the stigma around sex and sexual health. So I think it's really important that GPs acknowledge this and acknowledge that it can be a difficult and uncomfortable position for young people to put themselves in. So I think just simply listening to the young person about their concerns and just being respectful and trying to understand them. And understand that some young people may not feel comfortable or have the knowledge on how to express or articulate sexual health and their sexual health needs. So just really encourage them to ask questions and try to answer those questions 
in a way that they can understand. Lovely. Thank you very much. Joa, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, in addition to that, I feel it is really crucial to build that trusting relationship. And that can come through simple things like explicitly stating the role of the GP in the life of people and that a GP is someone who you can turn to for pretty much any health issue, either sexual, mental or physical, and they have a pivotal role in your life. And once you kind of realize and appreciate that, it will really help those young people open up to their GPs. So yeah, basically building that trusting relationship, which is really, really crucial. And I guess it takes time to build that. Thanks very much, Joad. Courtney, you must have heard from a lot of young people in your work. What messages do you hear about how people want GPs to engage with them? Yeah, we do hear a lot from young people. We've been very specifically asking these questions about health access in the last two or three years. Like, I have a few things that we can add on from Ali and Joad's comments, but they've, they've very succinctly answered what the main issues are. Some of that being reiterating that young people aren't 100% sure of what they can and can't ask. There's often a power imbalance for young people in a doctor's office and it's really important to think about how you can try and mitigate that experience for them. One thing that we also hear from young people is they really want to be treated with patients as a patient. Sometimes it takes a bit more time to have them feel like their experience is really heard and valued from their perspectives. And one of the other things that we've also had pointed out is body language is really important for young people. It's one of the areas that they're used to interpreting information and probably one of the spaces that's quite safe for them in a doctor's office. So trying to use really positive and open body language and also considering that young people might react in a little bit of a different way to your regular patients. It might be the first time they've ever been to a doctor. They might have very nervous reactions in that situation. So just trying to be really patient and soft and kind and unjudgmental in that circumstance. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Melissa, you must have seen quite a few young people in your practice. What do you do that engages and builds the trust of young people around their sexual health? Thanks, Tim. And hi, everyone. It's so wonderful to hear young people themselves tell us what it's like for them. And that's what being a good GP with young people is all about. I think it's about making the time to listen. One of the key messages I give to GPs, to medical students, to registrars is that the initial getting to know a young person as a patient, whether they've been a patient your whole career or whether they're new to your practice, it's about engagement rather than getting down to sorting out their entire medical history or their diagnosis. And I think that I have spent many a consultation the first time I meet a young person just doing that. And I know that we're here to talk about specifically STIs and testing, but I think we still have to make sure that we make time to make a young person feel that they can talk to us, that it's confidential, that we perhaps acknowledge things like how they're feeling about coming to see us, that we ask them what their preferred name and pronoun is, that we perhaps inquire a little bit about who they are, where they're from, a bit about their cultural background. That sounds like, oh my goodness, you know, that's a lot of time, but it in fact only takes about two or three minutes if we get practised at it. So I think that would be my first advice to GPs and my experience as well is it's about building that engagement right at the start. 
Excellent. That's wonderful. And Elizabeth, you run our whole practice, and I'm aware that the engagement doesn't just start in our consulting rooms. People um, have experiences right from the front door and through reception and seeing our other practice staff as well. So I imagine that engagement, what do you do that engages throughout that whole journey through the practice? You're quite right. Um, engagement starts with whether the practice is youth-friendly to for access to appointments. So that it comes down to having appointments online where people can have a look at your website, make an appointment online. I think it's important for there to be some biographies on your website so they can have a look at who you are and what your interests are. And then in the waiting room, it's having posters up that remind people that you're a place that's safe for the LGBTI community, that you're safe for the Indigenous community, that you have an interest in sexual health and an interest in youth. For us in a rural area, often people have been attending the practice since they were a child. So it's allowing them to feel that you recognise they've moved from childhood into adulthood and that you want to travel through that journey with them and support them through the, the change in their life. That's great. Thank you very much. So those sounds like things that any of us in general practice can do, that it's not so much about our own personal characteristics, but that we can all do be non-judgmental and actually actively listen to people. One of the things that can be difficult for young people is expressing their needs around their sexual health and what their priorities are. And I was just wondering what, what we knew already about what the needs and priorities of young people regarding their sexual health are. Joad, what, what would you say that the needs and priorities of young people that you know are? I'd say confidentiality is a big one. And regarding confidentiality, I think it would be preferred if healthcare professionals can explicitly state confidentiality. And the reason why I say that is because when doctors do go through med schools or any other healthcare professionals, like when they go through their learning process, ethical principles like confidentiality, patient autonomy are like constantly emphasized. So in a way, kind of becomes something that is expected. It is something that should be known. However, for that young person, it may not be that obvious. So it's very important if, if this confidentiality could be emphasized explicitly. And in addition to that, it becomes more of an issue when a general practitioner is seeing an entire family. So that young person knows that the GP he is going to sees their parents, sees their mothers and fathers. That could bring more nervousness into the person, make them more hesitant in sharing their experiences. So I feel that if you can simply state confidentiality and say whatever you told me, will remain with me. It is confidential. It's not something that will be relayed back to your parents unless if there are some extenuating circumstances. I think that would be very, very helpful for young people. Thank you. I can imagine that's really important because while we know that confidentiality is really important to what we do, we, it's not necessarily true that uh, people coming to see us know that. So uh, I think that's a really important thing for us to emphasize. Ali, what, what have you found is really important priorities and needs of young people? Yeah, I also have to agree with Joanne around confidentiality. That's a big deal and can be a big concern for young people because they might be scared that their family will find out or their friends will find out and that can be a real barrier for them to accessing sexual health care, and especially in rural and remote towns, because it's, they are such small areas, there might be only one or two medical centres, that can be a big deal breaker. So just outlining confidentiality. I know some practices charge a co-payment, some practices bulk bill. Does that have an impact on the way that young people seek their health? Yeah, I think 
it does. A majority of young people don't understand the concept of Medicare and they are quite concerned around the cost of it. So even though we do have bulk billing, some services do not, young people don't know this. So I think GPs taking the time to explain what Medicare is and going through that and making sure that young people understand it will be really helpful. Thank you. That's really helpful because often we take that for granted. Courtney, what are your thoughts on the needs and priorities of young people? I'd just love to add to the Medicare space. That's something that comes up the most frequently for young people by far for us in our conversations that we've been having with young people. The idea of the gap is really hard for young people to grasp what that means and how much they're actually going to be paying, even though oftentimes it is only $30 or something like that. Also trying to keep in mind that $30 for many young people is beyond what they can afford. In the perfect world, it would be amazing if doctors could say, we don't charge a gap fee, we only bulk bill for young people up to the age of 18 or something along that. If that was possible, that would be an incredible thing and would break down a huge amount of barriers for young people. So yeah, trying to have your staff who communicate with the patients be able to explain what Medicare is and lead them to where they can get their Medicare card if they're able to do that, that would also be very helpful for them. Ali, I'm aware you're originally from Moree and Elizabeth, you're based in Tamworth. Are there some particular issues around travel in rural and remote towns or even sometimes in in the cities? Definitely. And we're very lucky here in Tamworth. So we have a sexual health clinic, which there's no fee involved in that and you don't have to have a Medicare card. And we do see some young people that travel from out of town, some of the surrounding towns in that clinic. And one of the main reasons for that is that their local GP, there is a, a cost involved in visiting their local GP or the confidentiality they've been seeing that GP since they're a child or their whole family goes there. For the GP practice itself, in some of the smaller towns, yes, you can walk in, you might be able to get the school bus there or go after school, but access to appointments can be an issue when the GPs mainly open business hours. And if you need to get lifts to the doctor and those sorts of things, and obviously you need someone with a licence, so often it's a parent or guardian. I'm often quite impressed in my GP practice how many young people come with the knowledge of their parents. So, you know, a a parent or guardian will come in with them and halfway through the consultation will be able to say, okay, I'm going to see Sarah on her own now and their parent or guardian will leave the room, which is really lovely. But they're being supported to look after themselves and supported to make good health decisions. And Melissa, what have you noticed about the sexual health needs and priorities of young people that that you see in your experience? I'd like to add to what the others have said and talk perhaps about the concept of health literacy and access and how those two concepts are linked. So cost, confidentiality, feeling comfortable, feeling that you won't be judged, all critically important for all of us, I think, but certainly for young people who may not have as much experience of seeing health professionals on their own. Over the years of doing research into access for young people to healthcare, one of the things that's come up is that a lot of young people, when it comes to something stigmatised or very personal like sexual health, is that they might actually choose to go to a different health service, a different GP than perhaps their family doctor. And that's been particularly true for some groups of young people that I've met over the years. 
So I think young people need to know, they need to learn this in school, ideally, and from their parents and guardians, that they have the right, in fact, to access a range of primary care services and general practices. If there are sexual health clinics nearby that are accessible, they need to know that they exist and and how to access those services. So I think it's more than just giving young people information, health information about what an STI is or how easy it is to have a test. It's actually about then giving them the skills and the words perhaps even to, to know how to make an appointment, how to look a service up on the internet and decide which one to go to if they really feel that they can't ask a parent or guardian for that support. And a lot of young people, of course, can. So I think that's a really important component of health literacy. Cost is absolutely critical. In some statewide research I led in New South Wales a couple of years ago, cost was the number one barrier for all young people that we surveyed. It was a major problem. And if it wasn't perhaps the cost of actually seeing a GP, it was then the cost of buying a prescription or having a pathology test done. So we need to be thinking about these things as well as GPs. I think that young people need to know that, you know, parents and guardians, they may choose to have them come with them or be informed about their healthcare, but they have the right to be seeing a GP on their own if they want to. And the other thing I think that's increasingly thought about now, and particularly in in the time of the COVID pandemic, is becoming a bit more flexible around how we provide healthcare. Can we, in fact, do an assessment of a young person through telehealth or not through a face-to-face appointment where they have to come and sit and wait in a waiting room for a long time? This is something that we've learned a lot from surveys and interviews with young people is that it really, particularly in some rural areas, we found that sometimes the waiting time can be you know, up to two hours waiting to see a GP. I see this myself in the suburbs of Sydney where I I practice is young people telling me that they've gone to a centre where there are no appointments and they've had to sit and wait for a couple of hours. So I think we need to really think about the way we provide some of the healthcare that we do and make use of technology as well. It's worth remembering that there are telehealth items for discussing sexual health as well. So that can be really useful, particularly during the pandemic. I'm aware that many of our health services are they're more comfortable for people like ourselves and people from mainstream communities. But uh, Melissa, you've done a lot of research asking people who aren't engaged well by mainstream services very often about their experiences. And that was the Access Research Project. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the key findings that you found about different groups and their access to health? Yes, sure. So there was a study called Access 3 that was conducted across New South Wales and funded by New South Wales Health. We did a survey amongst over 1,400 young people where we oversampled from particular populations. They were Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people, young people experiencing homelessness, refugee and vulnerable migrant background young people, sexuality and gender diverse young people, and young people who resided in rural and remote areas. So those five groups. We also ended up with a large sample of young people who lived with a chronic illness of some sort and also therefore experienced a kind of marginalisation. The main findings were, as I mentioned earlier, that cost was the number one barrier across all of those groups and across the whole sample at large. We did a sub-study with about 40 of those young people who participated in the survey and we followed them over 12 months and we interviewed them every three months to ask about their experiences of getting around the health system. And we found, in fact, we did those interviews only with young people who belonged to one or more of those five marginalised groups. And we found, in fact, that all of those young people experienced very similar 
challenges, barriers when it came to navigating their way through the health system. They all described a degree of feeling discriminated against, sometimes simply because they were young, and particularly if it came to sexual health or sensitive issues, including mental health sometimes, that they used technology as a first point of call to find out about a health problem. They would search for their symptoms and see what they came up with and help make a decision about whether they needed to access healthcare. And then they would use technology to figure out which health service to go to. But they also relied a lot on word of mouth and perhaps advice from a parent or carer or a peer. The other thing that we found was that they made their decisions about whether to get healthcare based on a kind of weighing up of factors at that particular point in time. So was it convenient? Did it conflict with exams or work shifts? Or how much was it going to cost? What were their previous experiences like? These were the sorts of things that they weigh up every single time they're making a decision as to whether to access a a health service or not. I think as health professionals, it's really important for us to consider that we aren't the be all and end all, even though we know and, and a young person might know that the health problem that they're experiencing is particularly pressing. It still might not be enough to get them over the line to come and see us if they're juggling all these other commitments and priorities. When we looked at the individual groups of young people from those different populations to see if there were any differences. A couple of things stood out. Young people of refugee background whose English language skills were more fluent than those of their other family members did a lot of navigating the health system on behalf of their families as well. And that put a huge amount of responsibility and extra stress on them. We found that young people of sexuality and gender diverse identities had in some ways the worst health status, the most difficulty accessing face-to-face health services, that they interacted a lot more online with peers and anonymously to get information and advice, and they felt particularly discriminated against. We found that young people from rural and remote areas often didn't have the services available to them that they needed, and that was a real problem, and cost was also sometimes a real problem for them. Young people experiencing homelessness relied on support workers like youth workers, social workers to help them navigate the health system because it was just too hard otherwise. And Aboriginal young people spoke about the importance of family and how they would listen to the advice or the wisdom of, of family and elders in order to help understand their health concerns. So that's a kind of summary of the perspectives of young people that we found in the Access 3 study, which were fed into policy recommendations for New South Wales Health. Thank you. That's really interesting. Does that tally with with your experience working in Tamworth, Elizabeth? Yeah, I think a lot of what Melissa's spoken about really does reflect the use that I see. Some of the main concerns, I guess, are are cost and transport and knowledge of what services are available in our area and how they can access them and understanding that, yep, we're your family GP, but you can go to other services as an individual for your own personal care. I think one of the big things for me is I often see people when they come in with an acute injury or with symptoms. So it's that understanding the difference between preventative medicine and sort of the need for treatment. So I, th- I think people don't realise that you can come to the GP for preventative care and the importance behind what we do now can prevent trouble later versus turning up when you're unwell. So most of the young people I see come in because they're acutely unwell. 
Yeah, certainly that's true. I'm aware in my own work in an Aboriginal community controlled health service that often um, many Aboriginal people have had bad experiences in health services before and they sort of can have a profound impact. Ali, as a you're a young Gamilaroi woman, what's been your experience and what's what's the best way that you know of of um, GPs helping overcome those those difficulties that for many Aboriginal people attending health services? Sexual health and the conversations around that can be quite a sensitive and complex and personal topic within most Aboriginal communities and families. And I think GPs really need to be aware of this and knowledge that it is a very sensitive topic within our communities. And that, yes, the health system has failed our people. So many young people don't feel comfortable and they feel scared to enter these systems. And I think it's really important for GPs to create a culturally safe environment whether that's through employing an Indigenous health worker that speaks to them before and after an appointment or having Indigenous posters around the centre or in your room or just simply voicing that they're in a safe environment. And I think as a GP, you should be really encouraging these young Indigenous people who come to you to be leading honest conversations in their own communities around sexual health because that's where real change is going to happen. It's going to happen with young Indigenous people leading those conversations. So really encourage young people to take control of their own sexual health by creating a really welcoming and culturally safe environment for them so they can really learn and then they can go out to their communities and speak to other young mobs and really get those conversations going and to kind of change the current conversations because it is quite sensitive, it's quite personal, we don't like talking about it, but change that conversation to, yes, sexual health is important. We really need to get on top of it as young people and we need to lead and make those changes and if you personally don't feel comfortable as a GP making or you know how to create a culturally safe space then hire an Indigenous health worker speak to elders in your community that you work in and ask how can I make young Indigenous people feel safe in my room in my medical centre and maybe also provide those young Indigenous people come to you provide information around Aboriginal programs and campaigns or social media accounts that are doing things around sexual health and really supporting those programs that are community-led. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. That's that's really helpful advice. Jawad, I'm aware many of the GPs work in very socially diverse communities, and so you and people you know will have had experiences of cross-cultural consulting with GPs and practice staff from entirely different cultural backgrounds to their patients. What comes up for those people attending general practices? Yeah, that, that is a very important aspect to consider. And based on the conversations that I've had with young people around me in my community, what I've come to realise is that talking about sexual health may be more stigmatised in certain cultures and it will just make things harder for them. It will make it more difficult for them to open up. And another thing I realised was... When we do talk about people from culturally diverse backgrounds, another issue that comes into it is language barriers. And that makes it a lot more harder because now people find it very difficult to express themselves due to these language barriers regarding a topic which is something they're not, for example, supposed to talk about or is that, or that is what the commonly held belief is. So I feel like the level of sensitivity and care that is needed should be refined and 
Yeah, I think it's more about building that understanding about those cultures and having that cultural competence that comes with experience, comes with seeing patients of various cultural backgrounds. But I feel education, educating patients about this, informing them that they're more than welcome to discuss these issues with them. And if they're not comfortable talking about it um, in front of their parents, if they can talk about it on their own, come in individually, then really providing that support around it, providing information around it. Because I feel many young people may be dependent on their parents, looking in consoles, coming in with them, but really empowering them, empowering the youth um, really goes a long way. Not simply saying that, look, you can come into my clinic by yourself and we can have this discussion individually or personally, but really helping them and guiding them in the process of booking consults and regarding the documents needed to book consults. And it comes back to that topic of costs and everything. So I feel like all these factors are interlinked, but yeah, really being considerate of various cultural factors that can play a role in this. That's really helpful. Thank you very much. It feels appropriate that as we're coming towards the end of the podcast, there's one issue that we probably haven't come up with yet. And, it's, and that's just the sense of embarrassment that talking about sex and gender, both for, for young people who maybe don't know the GP, but also sometimes for GPs as well. Courtney, what can help us overcome the embarrassment that we feel? What I'm hearing from young people is that it starts with the safe space and feeling respected and not feeling judged. There's a huge amount of feeling that they are going to be judged about anything sexual, especially because we have a huge amount of social taboos around sex. And, and luckily we're sort of moving towards a space of sex positivity that's starting to open up those conversations. I think the young people would probably have some more insight into how they would feel this could be approached better. But what I would like to add, I suppose, what the most important aspect for young people is definitely feeling safe and feeling comfortable and feeling as though they're not going to be judged. That often comes down to taking time and patience, like we spoke about at the start of the podcast, making sure that you as a GP leave your unintentional bias at the door when you're asking young people about their sexual history. It can be really difficult for a young person to answer that question. So providing the space and the time needed to make them feel really comfortable. I'd love to pass to Juad and Ellie to see what they would like to say about that. I feel embarrassment and being shy is normal. It's part of the process. But in saying that, it could act as a big barrier for young people to open up regarding their concerns when it comes to sexual health. And I feel like the process of easing that shyness or reducing that embarrassment does not begin in the console, but it begins before that. So when a young person goes into a healthcare clinic, a GP clinic, and they're sitting in their waiting room and they're looking around and they see posters about mental health, they see posters about chronic illnesses, but then when they don't see any posters about sexual health, in their brain, they may think that it is something that you don't openly talk about. And it kind of reinforces that embarrassment and that shyness. So if we can probably put up some posters regarding sexual health in the clinics and the waiting areas, then that will really help ease that anxiety and really make it seem like this is something that is welcomed, it is normal, and most importantly, it is something that is part of the clinic. So one example is when I went to get a sexual health checkup and I was a bit nervous at the start, but as soon as I walked into my GP's room, 
she was really welcoming she had a big smile on her face she asked me why I was there I said sexual health checkup I was a bit shamed and then she said that's totally okay don't be scared don't be nervous it's really important sexual health is important as young people you need to be checking up on it and it's the day-to-day thing it's normal so really just normalizing it and making sure that that young person doesn't feel nervous or ashamed and just embedding it and normalizing it I think it's really important that's great. And Elizabeth and Melissa, I imagine there was a day when you were started out and you were embarrassed to ask these questions. What did you do to overcome those sorts of feelings? Thanks, Tim. That's a really important thing. What I like to do when I am talking to not just GPs, but students, any health professional, whether they're an undergraduate or a very experienced clinician, is to take a moment to think about our own discomfort with a particular issue. In this case, we're talking about sexual health and sex, and it's probably one of the most common topics that people feel uncomfortable talking about, but there could be others. I think it's really important to, you know, it's like having a little moment of self-reflection going, okay, I feel a bit awkward about this, but that's okay. This is about my patient. This is about what their needs are. I think it's really important to acknowledge that. And as Courtney said earlier to leave the biases at the door that you might have. We're here to provide an excellent service to our patients. We have that duty and it doesn't matter whether they're young or old. It's about why they've come to see us and building a relationship of trust. So I think to answer the other part of your question, which is about how do you get more comfortable with it, really it's about practice. I think it's a constant reflection on your own feelings and thoughts and attitudes and then practicing over and over again and reflecting back on how you did in that particular consultation. Thanks very much, Melissa. Elizabeth, how did you stop yourself feeling quite so embarrassed in the early days? I think it's exactly as Melissa was saying, it's just practice. I love the consultations where a young person comes in and sits down and says, I'm here because I think I need a sexual health check or I'd like a sexual health check. They're the ones where you can gauge from your patient and you follow on with them. The trickier ones, I think, are are where you're bringing up the topic and you don't, you know, it's about asking enough questions to get the information that you need to make the correct choices about your testing without sounding like you're being nosy and intrusive into their personal life. But I I think it's practice. It's realising your embarrassment or concerns about things and then just working around the way that's going to suit you. And a lot of it's about gauging from your patient how they're responding to your topics or your questions and how uncomfortable or comfortable they are with what you're asking them. One of the main things I think is it really is about asking enough to learn the knowledge you need but not asking too much. So if you see that someone's starting to to pull back a bit, well, then that's fine. You stop and you acknowledge that. That's not a problem at all. We don't have to – I'm not going to ask you any more questions – I've asked you these questions so I can work out what testing I need to give you to look after you. So work with your patient, not have a spiel in your head that you're going to get through no matter what they want you to do. Which just about brings us to the end of our time together today. And I feel like we've covered an awful lot of ground today. So um, I'd actually like to invite everyone to go around and say, what's the one key lesson from what we've covered today for our GPs to think about and put into practice? I'm going to start with you, Melissa. 
Thank you. Well, I think you said it at the very beginning, Tim, that young people do carry the burden of STIs in our community. And so we owe it to them as frontline health professionals to treat them as individual patients, but also to bring down this burden across that population. Lovely. Thank you, Elizabeth. We've had so many great things we've talked about so far, but I think my key thing would be to ask. Make sure that whenever you see a young person, you're doing your HEADS assessment. Sexual health is part of that HEADS assessment, so please start the conversation. Lovely. That's great. Courtney, what would be your bit of advice? We have had such a wonderful conversation. It's been really nice to hear from everybody here. My main point would be to try and think of when you have a young person as a patient, especially if they've come in without their parents, try and treat it like this is the first time a young person has been to a doctor. There's a big power imbalance that's happening. Young people hold the burden of not being able to figure out how the health system works because the information is so hard to access. So try and treat it as the first time they've been there. You really want them to have a good experience because one of the barriers they have is that when they have a bad experience, it becomes a preventative issue. They often can't get through that to go and visit a doctor when they need to. So just making sure that you're being the best you can at that point in time when there's a young person with you. Lovely. Thank you very much. And finally, and most importantly, Jawad and Ali. Jawad, what would be your key message for GPs listening? I think my key message would be to build an open and non-judgmental environment. And that begins not in the console, but before that, based on how you set up your clinic and your website, for example, what sort of information you show up on your website to really make it feel like sexual health is something that is not to shy away from, but you more than welcome people to come in and share their concerns regarding it. Lovely. Thank you very much. And Ali, what would be your key point? I think my key point would be that sexual health can be really hard for young people to speak about. So really breaking down that stigma and making it a really comfortable environment and a positive experience for young people when they do come to see you. And just acknowledging that, yeah, it is difficult and really encourage them to articulate themselves and really answer their questions in a really respectful and understanding way. Thank you very much. That brings us to the end. I'd love to thank our panel of uh, Dr. Melissa Kang, Dr. Elizabeth LePrince, Courtney Vernalia, Ali Carter and Jawad Imam for providing such valuable insights for us today. Thank you very much to New South Wales Health for sponsoring this pair of podcasts. Coming up, you must tune into the part two of our podcast where we delve down a little bit deeper into what we're going to do in the, in the consultations to actually be effective at providing sexual health to young people. Thank you very much for listening. We'll catch up with you in part two of the podcast.